Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Ed Crane, president of the Cato Institute, and I'd like to welcome you to our forum uh, today with uh, former Minnesota Governor uh, Tim Pawlenty. I should note that over the years, Cato's had good relations with several prominent Minnesotans, including uh, Jean McCarthy, the former senator, the late Jean McCarthy, who was a regular commentator on our daily radio show Byline, and uh, also Tim Penny, who worked with us on Social Security and the need to make uh, Social Security uh, a ownership program where you actually own the money and bought assets with the money you paid into it and therefore could leave it to your loved ones. And Tim still works on those things, so we're glad to have yet another Minnesotan with us. The governor is here to uh, speak about fiscal policy and specifically how we can get uh, federal spending, which is out of control, under control. Following uh, his comments, Governor Pawlenty has agreed to take a few questions from this audience uh, dealing with the substance of his talk. Uh, for those who might have uh, questions on other subjects, uh, Following the close of this program, the governor will hold a press availability outside uh, of this building. Um, we would therefore appreciate it if the media refrained from asking questions at this particular uh, session. The Cato Institute, uh, perhaps as much as any uh, policy group in the nation, believes government spending is far too great at the federal, state, and local levels. We also believe that the true tax on the American people um, is uh, the resources extracted from the private sector and employed in the public sector, which is to say spending, uh, which is why we are delighted to have Governor uh, Pawlenty with us today. Cato publishes a um, biennial governor's uh, fiscal report card, and last year only four governors received the grade of A. Um, seven got Fs and probably should have been more. But Governor Palente was one of the ones who earned the A, and he earned it in Minnesota uh, with a legislature controlled by the DFL, a party that uh, never saw a tax hike it didn't like. Chris Edwards, uh, Cato's director of uh, tax policy studies, does our report card for us. Uh, and if you read it, it describes a truly uh, admirable financial or fiscal record on Tim's part, uh, full of vetoes, balanced budgets, tax cuts, and spending cuts. Uh, Chris, by the way, also edits Cato's downsizinggovernment.org website, uh, a department by department, agency by agency, analysis of how to reduce the size of the federal government. And one last uh, comment about Chris Edwards. Uh, he is also the analyst who first brought to the nation's attention the fact that the pay and benefit packages of federal workers uh, exceed uh, that of the, their private sector uh, uh, counterparts. Uh, calls to freeze federal pay emanate from that analysis. Tim Pawlenty has a law degree from the University of Minnesota and was first elected governor of Minnesota in uh, 2002, uh, subsequently having been re-elected in 2006. More recently, he was vice chair of the Republican Governors Association playing an important role in the GOP's remarkable pickup of 11 uh, previously democratically held uh, governorships. As I mentioned, his talk here is about the need and means for reducing the size 
of the federal government, please welcome the former governor of Minnesota, Tim Pawlenty. Well, good afternoon. Thank you for being here today. And I want to thank Ed and the Cato Institute for their important work and for their gracious hospitality in hosting these uh, remarks and this interaction today. Appreciate it very much. The work of the Cato Institute for many decades and many years has been at the forefront of the cause of trying to limit government and have it live within its means and to have a proper and limited relationship uh, with the people of this great country. And I know that conservatives all across the country look to you, Ed, and to the Cato Institute for really good research, great ideas, and the work that you do and continue to do is really valued and appreciated. So thank you to the Cato Institute. I want to just start my remarks today by uh, reflecting on something that Conrad Hilton said. Uh, of course, he was one of the great American business leaders. And when I was younger, I remember hearing about an interview, I don't know if it was on Johnny Carson or one of the late night shows, I think it was, where he was asked towards the end of his career, now, if you had to look the American people in the eye and you know, tell them uh, something that you've learned that's a profoundly important lesson uh, or something that you give them as a takeaway, what would it be? And he is, uh, said, well, I guess what I'd tell them is, please put the shower curtain inside the tub. Uh, of all the things that he could have commented on, he picked that one. And I think there's a message in that for us and for the topic here today, which are we have to use common sense. We have to make sure that we do the basic things right in the ways that we know have served this country so well for so long. And if we had the time to go around this room and talk to each person, you know, starting with Kim and then going to Hillary, and I can't read the gentleman, I think it's Ted's name uh, behind Hillary, and asked each of you to share with this group and our audience more broadly, please tell us your American story. You know, what do you value the most? What brings you the most joy and the most passion? You know, tell us about what you've learned in terms of your life successes and goals and your disappointments. I think we'd hear inspiring stories about uh, people's faith and their families. We'd certainly hear inspiring stories about people having dreams and uh, trying to build something or looking forward to a future where they're trying to do something new or different or better. I think we'd hear inspiring stories about the role that community and neighborhood has played in your life. I, I think we'd hear inspiring stories about the role that charity or philanthropy uh, plays in your lives. I think we'd hear stories about people who've had some incredible successes and how they did it and what that meant to them in terms of hard work, industriousness, and, and risk-taking and teamwork. I think we'd hear some incredible stories about people who tried all of that and then failed and stumbled and somehow rebuilt and got back in the game. I think we'd hear stories about people who perhaps had life challenges. And for some, that might come in the form of uh, financial challenges. For others, that may come in the form of health challenges. We'd hear stories about neighbors or family or loved ones pulling alongside and maybe one of those uh, moments of challenge or chapters of challenge and picking you up and giving you a pat on the back and giving you some love and encouragement, encourage you to keep going, and on down the list. But what I don't think we'd hear very often, at least, is stories about how government came into your life and transformed your life in some powerfully a positive way in some powerfully transformative way uh, to the positive. And I share that story with you because the American story, the story of the greatest and most successful nation in the history of the world, is not a story about the American government. It's largely a story about the American people. And those stories individually and, of course, collectively add up to the importance that we've placed on just those values that I've described to you. 
And those values have made our people strong and our people good, which in turn means that our government has been strong and good, but it has to be limited. And as government, particularly in recent years and decades, has pushed into our lives in ways that the country hasn't experienced before and begun to expand its footprint by crowding out other non-governmental footprints, for example, pushing into areas that were the responsibility of parents or families or pushing into areas that previously were the responsibility of community or charity or philanthropy or pushing into areas that were previously uh, the responsibility of entrepreneurs or private markets. As government pushes into those areas, they not only grow their footprint, they not only grow their budgets and run up the numbers as we have painfully seen and I'll describe uh, in more detail in just a moment, but something else occurs that I think is equally corrosive and equally problematic for our country. The weight of all of that discourages the American spirit. And as I travel the country, there's a great sense around America that perhaps our better days may not be in front of us, but behind us, that the things that we knew and appreciated and valued in the form of those values and American common sense are slipping away. And people yearn to have them restored. And so when government comes in and says, we're going to make it more difficult, we're going to make it heavier, we're going to make it slower, we're going to make it more expensive, we're going to make it more discouraging, we're going to make it more uncertain, or no thank you, we'll do these things, they really elbow aside and weigh down that American spirit. And we need to get that back. Together, we need to get that back as a country where we become, again, a common sense, can-do country that looks these challenges in the eye that I'm about to describe and says, oh, we can do it. And we're going to look each other in the eye and be bold, and we're going to tell the truth, and we're going to not only identify the challenges clearly, but we're going to have the boldness and the courage to address them directly and honestly with each other as a team. And these problems are so big and so large and so imminent that we don't have the luxury of time. The hour is a lot later than I think many Americans realize in terms of the effects and consequences and fallout that's going to come if we don't get this fixed. But we also can't just shove the problem on people or the solution on people who are poorer than us or richer than us. It's going to take all of us. And the solutions that we put forward are going to have to acknowledge that reality. So that is a backdrop I want to just share very quickly with you, my American story. I grew up in South St. Paul, Minnesota. It, back then, it was a meatpacking town, some very large meatpacking plants, and uh, surrounded by some of the world's largest stockyards. My family was a, a typical, hardworking, blue-collar family. My dad, for much of his life, was a truck driver. Uh, my, and he, later on in his life, he got promoted to a dispatcher and ultimately terminal manager, which we were very proud of, and he was able to move up in, in that regard in his career. But my mom died when I was 16 years old of ovarian cancer. And my dad, uh, not too much longer after that, for a while lost his job. And uh, he later was able to get other work, but for a while, you know, it looked very uncertain. I was a young person, mom had passed on, my dad's unemployed, and that community of meatpacking town uh, really began to unravel when those big meatpacking plants shut down and lots of people, when I was a young boy, were facing unemployment and economic uh, insecurity. And so I saw the faces of unemployment and uncertainty as a young person. And after my mom died, uh, you know, I was the only one in my family who was able to go to college. My brothers and sisters didn't lack in the capacity, they just lacked in the opportunity. So I understood some things early on, the importance of education as a ticket forward, 
the importance of doing my part in terms of hard work and getting my rear in gear to make sure I did my part in terms of individual responsibility, the importance of leaning into my faith in challenging times and all times, the importance of a loving family and others who rallied around in times of challenge and, and uh, giving you a pat on the back and encouragement to move forward. So people want to know, you know, where does this perspective that you have come from? It doesn't come from, for me, uh, this perspective of just reading books or white papers or the like. It comes from the stuff of life, and you've all had that in your own version of the American story. But now as to what we're facing and what we need to do, uh, we need to make sure that we are very clear about telling the truth about what we're up to. Our federal government is sinking in deficit and debt. Our economy is sputtering. The main pathway forward for most Americans in terms of their opportunity and their well-being is a job. So I want to focus on that, and I also want to focus today on what it's going to take to get the federal government better under control, including the benefits and salaries of the people who are working the federal bureaucracy. Our federal government, in rough terms, takes in about $2.2 trillion a year. And in terms of total federal outlays, they uh, put out about $3.7 trillion in spending. So think about that, 2.2 roughly in the door, 3.7 out the door. Uh, they're overspending by about $1.5 trillion this year. Roughly 40 cents of every dollar the federal government spends is a debt dollar, a deficit dollar. That you can't run your families like that. You can't run your businesses like that. And we certainly can't run the government like that. We can't do that anymore. And there can't be any more sacred cows. So in Iowa, we have to look at the good people of Iowa and the folks who are involved in agriculture and otherwise involved in the ethanol industry and say, because of this crushing debt and deficit load, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to phase out the ethanol subsidies that the federal government's been uh, providing. We're going to have to say to the seniors in Florida and all over America, uh, but real more and more specifically, the next generation and the young people, we're going to have to change the Social Security program, but we're going to do that in a way that doesn't affect the benefits for current retirees or anywhere uh, close to that. So we're going to have to look people in the eye and say, you know what, it's time. If you're new to the workforce, uh, for you, we're going to gradually raise the retirement age over time. We have to. Uh, it won't affect, again, anybody currently on the program or near it, but it will have to raise the retirement age uh, gradually over time. I don't like means testing philosophically. Uh, but we're at the point where we're choosing between suboptimal choices. And one of the choices we have to say is we're going to means test uh, the cost of living adjustment in Social Security. So if you're wealthy, you're not going to get that cost of living adjustment going forward. But if you're middle income or lower income, you will. Uh, as, and there are similar solutions for Medicaid and Medicare. Uh, we also have to go to our uh, other so-called sacred cows. And just by way of a couple more examples, one is Wall Street and the financial services industry and the larger industries all across this country. And to the extent that they're getting subsidies, directly or indirectly, those have to be shut off as well as part of a larger reform. And we have to look to Wall Street and say, look at uh, the carve-outs, the bailouts, the subsidies, the handouts uh, for you are over as well. And the list goes on and on and on. But the bottom line is there can be no more ducking, bobbing, and weaving about the real problem the magnitude of it, and what it's going to take uh, to fix it. Now, as it relates to federal spending more broadly, uh, there's one part I want to camp on today in particular, and that is how we deal with federal employees. Uh, and of course, big government and big unions have coalesced in ways that are not good for the country and not good for the taxpayers. The people who work in government, in most cases, are hardworking, good people. We don't mean to uh, bash them personally, but the system that they work in is really out of control. 
and needs to be reformed and needs to be restrained. And so we know that the people used to be drawn to public employment, and you'd often hear not long ago people say, well, I'm a public employee. You know, I don't get paid as much as the private sector, but they have really good benefits. And it was kind of a trade-off, and people were drawn to public service with that stated kind of swap in mind. But if you fast forward to today, what we unquestionably know is that in many cases, public employees are both overpaid and overbenefited compared to, in many cases, compared to their private sector counterparts. And that's just not fair. We can't have the people who are getting paid by the taxpayers getting a better deal than the taxpayers themselves. And these things have to be uh, reconciled. So in Minnesota, we did a number of things. And the topic here is kind of lessons learned along the way. But we need to do the basic things first. And that is no better deal for the people uh, who are getting the benefits and the pay than the people who are paying the bill. So first thing we have to do is freeze, continue to freeze the salary of federal employees, and in my view, public employees more broadly, until, uh, if, uh, until they're the same or no greater than the private sector employees. In other words, uh, there's a temporary freeze, and I froze salaries when I was the governor of the state of Minnesota as well, but unless and until uh, the differential to the positive for public employees is brought down or the private sector meet, uh, meets up with that, we have to continue to freeze public employee salaries. There's no question about that. And we can't just measure this in the value of the salary only. There's a current federal system and other similar systems at the state level where people make comparisons and say, well, look, if you just look at the salary or the cost of living adjustments, then they'll make the argument that public employees really aren't overpaid compared to private sector counterparts. But keep in mind a number of things. We have to look at the total package, both salary and benefits added together. And you can't just look at the annual cost of living adjustment. We have to look at the so-called longevity or seniority steps that public employees get as they advance in the seniority of their career. And then importantly, we also have to look at their benefits. As you know, most public employees have what's called a defined benefit pension program. Most people in the private sector don't have that anymore, particularly new employees entering into the workforce. And in many cases, public employees not only have a defined uh, benefit plan, which guarantees a result without regard to how the stock market's do doing or the underlying investments are doing, but in many cases, they also have the defined contribution program, which we have, or most people in the private sector have, and they also get, in many cases, a, a match, so they get both. Now, the point of all that is, is we're going to have to transition the public employee workforce from a defined co a benefit contribution plan to what most of the private sector gets, which is a uh, defined uh, contribution plan instead of a defined benefit plan. And those things have to be synchronized, and they have to be changed in reform, and that's something that's just going to have to go forward. Now, how to do that? In Minnesota, I took one of the longest transit strikes in the history of the country. The bus drivers in my state wanted to work just 15 years. In fact, they had this benefit, and then they wanted to be able to retire and then be eligible for the government to pay for their health insurance for the rest of their life. There was a major unfunded liability. Of course, it was financially upside down. And when their contract came up for renewal, I said, we're not doing that anymore. We can't. It's bankrupting the, the transit system. And they said, yes, we are, Governor. And by the way, if you don't, you know, you're gonna, we're going to shut down the transit system. You're going to have gridlock, and you'll be begging us to take our deal in a week into that strike. So they went out on strike. And I went around the state of Minnesota, and I asked people, if you're not in government, please raise your hand if you get to work just 15 years and then retire and then be eligible for somebody else to pay for your health insurance for the rest of your life. And no hands ever went up. 
I said, do you know that the bus drivers get that? They do? Do you know that you're paying for that? We are? Do you think we should do something about that? Heck yeah. By the end of that kind of interaction, of course, the public, then knowing that they weren't getting the same kind of deal and they're paying the bill for it, more than happy to change. And that bus system was shut down for 44 days. And in the end, the bus drivers came back and we shut off that benefit for new hires and the finances of that system began to correct themselves. Now, I share that story with you as just one case study of how you have to do these things. These are powerful interests. They are deeply ingrained. They incredibly hang on to the status quo with a white-knuckle grip. Uh, and we're going to have to have an equal amount of fortitude and vigor to draw some lines in the sand to get them changed. Now, we also did pension and, uh, reform in Minnesota before it was cool and popular. So uh, uh, back in 2010, there's a number of examples of this, but most recently signed a bill that reduced the increases in uh, public employee pensions over time to get them back towards actuarial soundness. And that means they had to contribute more as employees. It means if they weren't in very good financial shape, their projected increases in benefits would uh, be decreasing over time or be held flat, in some cases potentially down to zero percent increases. And now we have them on a better path towards solvency. And uh, that was done with the unions, by the way, in a cooperative change because they so didn't want defined contribution that they were willing to take a haircut on continuing defined benefit. Uh, and we made this as an interim step to get the thing on a better path. But now we got sued over it by the retirees, so it's pending in court. But it's an important uh, reform going forward. Next, we're going to have to also shrink the federal workforce. It has been growing uh, dramatically over many decades. And we now have about 40% of the federal workforce scheduled for retirement in the not too distant future. Through attrition, we can have a goal, and I think it's an appropriate goal, of replacing only one of those workers for each two that retire. And government, as you know, has a lot of work to do in terms of getting on the front end of technology, getting on the front end of efficiency, and improving these systems in a way that involve uh, the demand for fewer employees, but still provide the service in a robust way. I get criticized in Minnesota by AFSCME, the gentleman who leads at Elliott Side recently said I reduced the state workforce by about 11% during my time as governor. And he also went on to say that we have one of the leanest workforces in the country. And I forget the ratio he used, but I think he said we were sixth or seventh leanest in the country by their measure. And he was using that as a criticism of me uh, in a recent interview on television, I take that as a compliment. That's what we need to do in government more broadly, and we can't have government be the only growth industry in this country. And then uh, lastly, before we take questions and answers, we also have to move all of these systems to performance and incentive-based systems. So I tell people, look, if you've got time to come to the Cato Institute or AEI or Heritage or other think tanks and attend seminars and read white papers, that's terrific. It's really important information, and it's wonderful. But all you really need to know about much of government reform is to go to two weddings. Uh, go to one wedding where there's a cash bar, and then go to another wedding where there's an open bar. And you'll see two very different sets of behaviors. And if people have the impression that things are free and they get to consume it endlessly, and the provider has the only incentive to provide on volume, and the myth or the lie is created that the bill goes somewhere else, and that a third party pays for it, that is a system that I can tell you is doomed to inefficiency or doomed to failure. And that's much of our government, unfortunately. So as we talk about education, healthcare, and much else, we have to reform it with those principles in mind. Let me give you two quick examples. I was governor, and we put forward one of the first 
performance pay systems that were offered statewide. The program's voluntary, but it was offered statewide for performance pay for teachers. And the teacher unions didn't like it. We had to go into special session. I think we resolved it as part of a government shutdown, the first, by the way, in a 150-year history of my state. But we got it done. And now for the first time in my state's history, we're changing a culture that rewarded and celebrated seniority, had money aligned mostly to how many years a public employee had been around, when the correlation to that, to the core mission of schools, which is student learning, is almost zero. And so we've begun to turn the aircraft carrier, that culture, that bureaucracy, to something that's more aligned to performance and things that are more closely aligned to student learning, like teacher development, teacher training on an ongoing and robust way. And then also in the area of healthcare as another example, and this is so profoundly important, whether it's school districts, whether it's the state, whether it's the federal government, whether it's the Department of Defense, the number one leader in terms of the things that is growing the fastest in government budgets, and the same is true for families and businesses, is health care. And we have now a, had a debate in the country led by President Obama that spent a good chunk of time but really didn't fix the problem. Uh, we have a, a president who said he was going to focus on cost containment, which is the concern, one of the main concerns for most Americans when they think about their health care, affordability and cost. President Obama, in my view, has led us to a conclusion that I think is, first of all, unconstitutional, but beyond that, is going to expand access to a system, but he didn't fix the system in terms of cost containment. In fact, he's going to make it worse. So in Minnesota, one of the things we did as an example of the principle I mentioned to you a minute ago, as we worked with the state employee unions, uh, they said, look, these health care costs are going up very high for them. They were for us, too, paying a big part of the premium. And the, got to a new system. We said to the public employees, the state employees, you can go wherever you'd like. Pick your own health plan and provider. But if you choose to go somewhere that's more expensive, and increasingly now we're able to measure whether it's any good in terms of quality, but if you go somewhere that's more expensive and uh, less uh, in quality, you're going to pay more. And if you go somewhere that is higher in quality and more efficient, you'll pay less. About 80% of the state employees migrated to higher quality or equal quality providers, uh, but they're more efficient. And the premiums in that program over seven or eight years of my time as governor were dramatically below uh, market. And a few of the years, a couple of the years, they're actually 0% increases. Why? Because even in a rudimentary way, a primitive way, now people had some skin in the game about where they were going, what they were consuming, what they were, cho what they were choosing. And it had a dramatic effect because the myth about everything being free was at least partially realigned into people having now to become more informed and more responsible consumers. And again, that model, what I'm describing to you, applies across much of government and it points the way forward uh, for reform in many of these programs. I'll leave the rest of the time for questions and answers, but I want to thank you for being here today. I also want to just remind everybody that you know the way forward may not be easy, uh, but it's not complex. We know that this country has had the most successful, most prosperous track record of any country in the history of the world and we can look back and see what worked and why it worked. And all we need to do is bring those experiences and principles and values to the debate and discussion of our time and apply them to the challenges of our time. Will it be easy? No, but it never has been easy. You know, Valley Forge wasn't easy. And settling the West wasn't easy. And winning World War II wasn't easy. And going to the moon wasn't easy. 
So we're not talking about what's just easy. We're talking about what needs to be done and being bold and candid and courageous about calling it out and getting the problem fixed. And I'm in that spirit, offer these observations to you today and welcome your questions. Thank you very much. Okay, yeah, just shout them out and I'll repeat them if the group can't hear. Yes, sir. If you could tell us your name and affiliation, please, and, and keep the questions related to the speech, please. Uh, first of all, I admire your eyesight to read my name from there. Uh, I'd like to get your response to uh, two comments I've heard over the last six months. One came on an NFL broadcast. I don't know if it was the Vikings, but Joe Buck makes the comment that the game is going to be carried on Armed Forces Network to troops in 175 countries. And I know there's a lot of embassies out there, but 175 countries, it just blows my mind. That's the first comment. The second comment was I heard somebody talking about exit strategies. So I naively assumed he's talking about Iraq and Afghanistan. No. He was talking about Europe, Japan, and Korea. And all those wars ended, I think, over 50 years ago. So why do we, with our current deficit challenges, why do we need to have all these troops in places where I don't think, you know, the problems were solved hopefully decades ago? Yeah. I think everybody could hear the question, so I won't repeat it. But this relates to the commitments of the United States of America, particularly militarily here and around the world, and of course the budget implications uh, within your question. You know, for a governor, I have a, a, an unusual amount of international experience. I've been able to travel the world for various reasons, but including five trips to Iraq, three trips to Afghanistan. I've been all over the Middle East, including Turkey and Israel and Jordan and Kuwait, meeting with leaders, visiting troops. Uh, doing a variety of other things. I've been to Bosnia and Kosovo to visit our troops there from the National Guard. I've led trade missions to South America and India and China and other places. Um, and I, I've had a chance to see the men and women in our military operate in war zones, operating as peacekeepers, doing various other uh, functions. I'm not one who's going to stand before you and tell you that we should cut the defense budget. So we're going to have an opportunity, I think, to responsibly and appropriately, based on conditions on the ground, draw down our presence uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan in the not-too-distant future, and that will help. But your question's broader than that. You raised the question of Asia as an example. If you go to Asia and you see what is uh, at, at play there in terms of China's influence economically, militarily, strategically, one of the questions that our friends and allies have in the region is this. Are you going to be here? Because if you're not, we've got to make other arrangements. Uh, we're going to start hedging our bets. And we got the same question in other important parts of the world. And you say, well, what, why would we want to be in South Korea? Well, I think we have some pretty profound commitments uh, historically because of the Korean War. But also we have a failed state or nearly failed state in North Korea with nuclear weapons. Uh, and we need to make sure that we have a presence as the United States of America in areas that could affect the security, our national security interests and the security interests of our friends and allies. But if you did what I think your question is implying, which is summarily and dramatically pull troops and take bases down out of Asia, then I think you'd see a massive realignment of strategic uh, relationship towards China and away from America in Asia. And I think that would be very unwise. Now, that is not to say the defense can't be more efficient that facilities can't be prioritized, and some of them 
uh, shut down or reduced. That's not to say that certain weapon systems can't be scaled back or reduced. There's, can't, that's not to say there aren't savings and efficiencies that can't be found within the Department of Defense. But if you believe what I believe about our nation's security, which is it is the first and most important obligation of the federal government, and we're going to use priority-based budgeting, put the most important thing on top. In my book, that goes right to the top of the list. And so this is not where we're going to get six months, uh, six years warning about the next conflict. This stuff can now happen in minutes. And we don't have, you know, 15 years and 20 years to say, gosh, I wish we would have developed that system. I wish we would have been present. I wish we would have been more capable. I wish we would have had more capacity on the ground uh, to develop the intelligence or the infrastructure or the ability to see this coming. So I understand the spirit of your question, and I respect it, sir. And I know there's inefficiencies in, in the Defense Department, and we should identify them, root them out, and redeploy those resources. But I'm not going to stand here or anywhere else and tell you that we should uh, cut the defense budget. We can slow it down. We can make it more efficient. Uh, but I'm not for shrinking America's presence in the world. I'm for making sure that America remains the world leader, not becoming uh, second or third or fourth uh, in the list. Governor, Governor? Yes. Penny Starr with CNS News. When you speak about trimming the, the federal workforce, would you consider eliminating any uh, federal agencies if, if you were president? I would, but I think in the spirit of the questions, we were going to get the press questions outside. Did you want me to do them here or outside? Ed? Outside. Please. We're going to do the press questions afterwards, so we'll come back to you. Yeah, sir, go ahead. Uh, thank you, Governor. My name is uh, Bert Ely, a banking consultant here in uh, town. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts about Paul Ryan's plans for reforming um, Medicare and specifically his voucher proposal, uh, particularly in light of the uh, outcome in the uh, New York special election yesterday, where, which is seen by some as a uh, referendum on Paul's uh, proposal. Sure. Well, I think everybody heard the question. The leadership and courage of Congressman Ryan in putting that forward should be noted. You know, before he did that, the President of the United States I think had proposed a $400 billion reduction over 10 years. So if you average that out, it would have been about a $40 billion reduction over 10 years at a time when we have trillion-dollar deficits every year. So the President was missing. He didn't lead. He didn't put anything on the table of specificity for any number of reasons. But in my view, he did not have the courage uh, to do what it take to lead the nation on one of the most pressing and important issues facing the United States of America, and that is how to tackle the debt and the deficit, really. So here comes Congressman Ryan, a very bright, uh, courageous congressman from Wisconsin, and he puts a plan on the table. And uh, it has sparked the debate. And then after that, the president comes forward with some supplements to his previous proposals. And so now you have the president, again, lagging behind members of Congress in the leadership category, particularly when it comes to these issues. As to Congressman Ryan's plan overall, I think in general, you know, the direction of it is positive. But I'm going to have my own plan. And so we're going to have some differences from his plan. Some things will be the same. Some things will be different. For example, he chose not to address Social Security. Perhaps for understandable reasons, we will, and we are. Our Medicare plan, which we'll have out uh, shortly in the uh, not-too-distant future, will have some differences. Uh, we'll be speaking about payment reform and paying providers, not just for volume, but for quality and results as part of their compensation. 
We'll be offering a variety of choices to people where they can choose to stay in the current program or select from other options. We'll be talking about incentivizing consumers so that they can make any number of choices that they like, but they'll be incentivized to make wise and good choices as it relates to quality health care outcomes and costs. Uh, but it'll, it'll be different than Congressman Ryan's proposal, and we'll have it for you in the not-too-distant future. Let's go in the back of the room, because I think some hands are up. We don't want to have all just people in the front. Anybody in the uh, back? Yeah, way in the back. Go ahead. Thank you. Uh, Deborah Cayetani, Democracy Work in Washington, D.C. Uh, would you mind commenting? This is a two-tiered question, very simple. You mentioned uh, ethanol, and uh, then you mentioned in the same sentence Social Security and the, and the, the, the extension of, uh, of uh, the age, the working age. Um, do you think these two things are the same or equal in importance and relevance to entitlements or to a functional constitutional democracy that has existed for uh, a much longer than uh, most stable third world governments? And the second question is, uh, uh, do have has your experience as governor exposed you to a budget or a history of budget making in your state that has planned for inflation? And if that plan for inflation isn't in place, would you, as a, as a business person or as a governor, take the responsibility to say that you need to plan for inflation and it isn't the employee's fault? Is, is that conversation, has, has, have you been exposed to as much as you need to be exposed to in your budget planning and your budget making to be able to say that it is the fault of the government or it is the fault of the, the, uh, the budget team who have not planned for inflation? Okay, thank you. I think, well, a number of comments and questions contained in, in the first one, as it relates to my call to phase out ethanol subsidies and the changes I mentioned to Social Security, which is to say for people entering the workforce where new people coming in, we're going to raise the retirement age gradually over time. I didn't mean to suggest those are of the same magnitude in terms of dollars. They're just meant to be examples of things that historically people have said, you know, you can't talk about that in Iowa. You can't talk about ethanol subsidies in Iowa, or you can't talk about uh, Social Security reform in Florida, where I was yesterday, or you can't go to Wall Street and talk about uh, what it's going to take to clean up the mess there, and that's where we're going to be in a couple of days. So I don't mean to suggest those are the same in magnitude or nature, but they're meant to uh, reflect examples of the kind of spirit we're going to have, which is to speak truth to what the real problem is and not have any sacred cows. And those are some examples. As to your second question about budgeting, in my experience, of course, I was governor of the state of Minnesota for eight years. We budget every two years in my state. And uh, we balance the budget every two years in my state without question. And so we uh, have a constitutional requirement, as almost every other state does. It must be balanced. It has to be balanced. Always will be balanced. In fact, the last budget that I uh, finished ends this summer, here in about two months, and it's going to end in the black. Now, as with most states, there's a projected deficit in the future in Minnesota, but it's based on a big increase in projected spending, 20-some percent increase, that I would have never allowed. So that's a, something that I think is uh, not, not, would have not happened, obviously, if I would have continued on as governor. And then beyond that, in terms of building in inflation or any other automatic increases in spending, I don't buy that. In fact, we purposely shut that uh, feature off in the Minnesota budgeting process because I don't think you budget by saying, 
you know, we're going to assume automatic increases in spending, and then we hope enough revenues come in to pay for it. I think the better way to budget, and I propose this in Minnesota, although the Democrat legislature wouldn't uh, take this approach, is to limit what you can project for spending based on the revenues that you brought in during the current budgeting cycle. In other words, you couldn't budget for the future more than the actual revenues that you bring in the door for the current budget period. That would lead to a much more measured and conservative uh, budget, and it would end this practice, which you see in Minnesota and many other states, and the federal government to some extent as well, which is we're just going to assume things are on autopilot going to grow, and grow in many cases, not just by the rate of inflation, but uh, multiple rates of inflation. So we had uh, health and human service programs, uh, health care programs, other programs growing 10, 15, 20, 25 percent a budget cycle, and it was baked into the budget forecast that they were going to go up automatically. And if the revenues didn't come in to support it, then you had a budget deficit. I think that's crazy. I think you should assume your revenues are going to be no greater than what you're bringing in the door, and you got to live within that, including assuming automatic increases for inflation. I don't like government on autopilot. I don't like automatic decision-making. I think what we should do is force the Congress and the state legislatures to appropriate each year or every two years uh, what amount of money they have coming in the door and only spend that amount of money. One last question for the governor before we have to break for a press conference. Yeah, uh, we'll do the gentleman the purple tie there since it's a Vikings color. Not only a Vikings color governor, but a Vikings fan. I'm All right. A former Minnesotan constituent for eight years of yours. Uh, I like what you're saying about limited government, especially with health care. Uh, my question to you is, how do you justify commenting on limiting health care when you vetoed my organization, the Marijuana Policy Projects, Medical Marijuana What bill, was the name of it? The Marijuana Policy marijuana, Project. The Le Mar uh, Medical Marijuana Group. That's correct. Yeah. In May of 2009, you vetoed that bill, which would have kept government out of the doctor-patient relationship and kept terminally ill Minnesotans out of jail. Well, I stood with law enforcement on this issue in Minnesota. The, almost unanimously, the sheriffs and the law enforcement community in Minnesota were opposed to legalizing marijuana in Minnesota, and I opposed it as well. And I think I vetoed at least one of the bills, if not more than one. And so we just have a respectful difference of opinion on the issue. It's not something I support. And it's because I defer to the judgment, wisdom, experience of law enforcement as it relates to that issue, and they got some real big concerns. Okay, thank you very much for coming. Appreciate it. Thank you, Governor Pawlenty, for visiting the Cato Institute, and thank you all for coming. Thanks,